Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. In her new book, Playing for God, Evangelical Women and the Unintended Consequences of Sports Ministry, published by New York University Press in 2015, Dr. Annie Blazer shows through archival research and participant observation how the paradigm of sports ministry transformed from one centered on celebrity male athletes using their fame to explicitly call audiences to conversion to Christ to one in which female athletes predominate and implicitly seek to convert their sports fans through moral Christian behavior while seeing themselves as engaged in spiritual warfare and enjoying the joys of athletic pleasure as God's affirmation of their own devotion. At the same time, Blazer shows how their identity as female athletes and relationship with, with players who are lesbians has led many to reinterpret or challenge traditional evangelical understandings of gender roles and sexuality. Throughout her book, Blazer skillfully weaves together the stories her subjects told her with her own insightful analysis, all done in a sensitive and even-handed way. This book is therefore an excellent read, and anyone interested in the intersection of sports, gender, and evangelical Christianity would gain much from it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm Dr. Franklin Rausch of Lander University, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Annie Blazer about her new book, Playing for God, Evangelical Women and the Unintended Consequences of Sports Ministry, which was published by New York University Press in 2015. Annie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. Well, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I grew up in Michigan. Uh, I have a, a big family. I have six younger brothers, um, which might explain the interest in sports. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I went to graduate school at UNC Chapel Hill and fell in love with the Mid-South, and I'm really happy to be teaching at the College of William & Mary in Virginia, um, where we have uh, long transitional seasons and very short winters. Oh, excellent. That's, that kind of weather is hard to beat. Exactly. So how did you become interested in, in uh, evangelical Christian women? It's a good question. I actually, when I started graduate school, I was very interested in cultural studies. And I spent my first few years of graduate school really digging into continental philosophy and political theory. Um, and at a certain point, my advisor said, do you want to get a job in religious studies? <laughs> and I said, oh, yes, I would. And he's like, well, I think it's time that you start studying religion. Uh, and this was, um, I was upset about this comment. Uh, so I said, fine, I'll study evangelicals. No one's going to tell me they're not religious. Um, <laughs> and so that began my, uh, my, my journey into American evangelicalism. And once I started investigating um, the relationship between evangelicals and popular culture, I realized that it was a very fruitful site for thinking about all the questions that I'd been interested in with cultural studies about relationships of power, about how narratives affect um, understandings and communities. So it, it ended up being a sort of um, perfect site for me to enter, even though I came at it in a strange way. Excellent. So how then did you um, did you come to write this book? So when I started studying evangelicals, I wanted to do um, an anthropological study. So I wanted to do field work where I would go and hang out with real people and 
sort of get a sense of their real lives. Um, and I was looking for an intersection of evangelicals and popular culture that would allow me to do that. And so my first impulse was actually to study evangelical music. Uh, and I did, did some preliminary research. Um, but the problem was that I didn't really enjoy the music. And I knew that I was going to be, if whatever I did, I knew I was signing up to experience it and talk about it for the next 10 years. So I decided that would not be a good direction to go in. Uh, and I sort of cast a wide net and looked at other places where evangelicals show up in pop culture. And I started thinking about all of these athletes that after games thank Jesus in their post-game interview. And I started looking around to see if anybody else had written about this. And there was some work, but not a lot of work and very, very little on women. Um, so I started investigating sort of local resources and UNC had uh, Athletes in Action chapters. So I started going to the meetings and talking to the members and the leaders of the organization. Um, and I realized that there was this huge network of sports ministry organizations all across the U.S. and the world that um, were a significant subcultural phenomenon within evangelical Christianity and a really ripe source for investigating the kinds of things. Um, two years of field work with different evangelical um, teams and organizations uh, and then uh, reflect on the, the issues that I saw there, and then what came out of that was this book. Oh, excellent, excellent. So maybe I'll, I'll go to the uh, question related to that. So how could you tell us a little bit about the research that you did for this book? You said that, you know, you, you didn't want to do the, the uh, CCM music route mm -hmm. because you'd be exposed to it for a lot of two years. So what did doing research for two years on evangelical sports, um, women in evangelical sports, what did that mean? Um, so I did sort of two uh, methods. One was archival research, where I went to the headquarters of Fellowship of Christian Athletes and Athletes in Action, and I looked at the publications of those organizations over the course of their existence. So Fellowship of Christian Athletes was formed in 1954, and Athletes in Action was formed in 1966. And throughout their, their lifespan, they both have um, publications that they would send out to their members. So they um, granted me full access to their archives, and I was able to collect a lot of resources that way. Um, so that was sort of a traditional archival scholarship. And then I also wanted to do anthropological fieldwork, where I would go and do participant observation with real Christian athletes um, as they worked through how to combine Christianity and sports. So um, I learned... Um, these are the two biggest organizations, Fellowship of Christian Athletes and Athletes in Action. So I wanted to study sort of what they were most well known for or also what they were sort of most proud of. And Fellowship of Christian Athletes over time has come to really target high school athletes and um, offers summer camp opportunities for high school athletes. So one field site that I investigated was a summer camp for high school athletes. Um, that was five days long and was full of programming morning to night about how to combine sports and Christianity um, and also how to succeed in your sport. Um, so that was one field site. Athletes in Action first made a name for themselves with traveling teams that would compete against secular teams. And they still do this. They do international and um, American tours 
where sports teams go on the road and play against existing secular teams. So I was able to join their women's basketball tour, which traveled around the Northeast and played exhibition games against Division I college teams. So I was on the road with them for their tour, which lasted several weeks. Um, and then my final field site was a, um, a sports-specific ministry focused on soccer called the Charlotte Lady Eagles, which when I studied them, they were a, a semi-professional soccer team headquartered in Charlotte, North Carolina, that played in a secular league. And when I studied them, they, that was the highest level of play available to women um, playing soccer in the U.S. So I sort of studied high school, college, and semi-professional athletes, um, and I studied uh, these sort of three different settings, looking at the two largest sports ministry groups and then also a sports-specific ministry group. Um, and I was with them for games, in the locker room, for travel, for Bible study, um, for all the sort of stuff they were doing that they thought was part of their lives as women, as Christians, and as athletes. Excellent. And this was, I think, really well done. I, I really enjoyed this part of the book because it really, I mean, obviously I'm not going to be in a a, a woman's locker room, <laughs> an evangelical Christian one, but, you know, I really got the sense of what it was like to be there. And for our listeners, this is one of the, the strengths of uh, Annie's book that um, I think to experience, you're going to have to go out and buy the book, is this richness of detail that she gives to the reader about, about what's going on in these, these uh, young women's lives. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. So uh, now the thing is, I'm, I'm not an ethnographer, I'm a historian, so I, I have to ask the other question. Uh, could you give us a brief history of the relationship between evangelical Christianity and sports ministry? Sure. So sports ministry emerges um, out of post-war evangelicals' impulse to engage secular culture. Uh, they had a desire to use any means at their disposal to spread the message of salvation. Uh, and so there, this is not the first time evangelicals have done this. Evangelicals are very adept at using new technologies and um, cultural sites to expand their um, audience. Um, but post-war evangelicals were sort of uh, very prolific at this. So you start to see expansions in ministries for sports, expanded use of um, television and uh, recording, expanded presence um, in film and other sort of aspects of popular culture, um, the formation of uh, stores that are specifically for evangelicals, um, the growth of megachurches. So this is part of a larger phenomenon about evangelical engagement of secular culture. Um, the folks that began this uh, were two men who were really um, struck by the treatment of athletes in America. And they saw athletes as these um, potential spokespeople for Christianity that could gather a really large audience. And their ways of describing um, the power of athletes was very much in line with the advertising ethos of the 1950s. So they would say, if athletes can sell cars, why can't they sell something greater, the message of Jesus Christ? So they had this very um, clear connection in their mind that what they were doing as evangelicals was 
um, promoting a message in the same way that other messages are promoted, like through advertising or through political um, lobbying. So they, they, they were completely intentional about this. Um, and so the, the, the founder of Fellowship of Christian Athletes um, began to uh, contact athletes that he knew were Christian and ask them if they were interested in getting together and sort of talking together about how to bring attention to the Christianity part of their lives as athletes. Um, and about 10 years later, a man named Dave Hanna, who is a member of Campus Crusade for Christ, uh, thought that Campus Crusade for Christ should have an athletic ministry branch where they specifically target athletes um, and try to bring them to Christianity and teach them how to use their position as athletes um, to reach an audience with the message, with the evangelical message of salvation. So that's the, the sort of impulse that began sports ministry as we now know it. Um, historians of American religion will note that there are a lot of similarities between sports ministry and a 19th century movement called muscular Christianity, which was a Protestant movement that was very interested in um, cultivating particular forms of masculinity and turning, turning boys into men through building character, which is a phrase that we get from muscular Christianity. So early sports ministry is very much part of that legacy of valuing masculinity within Protestantism as a, a way of demonstrating um, the power and strength and sort of um, excitement of evangelical Christianity. Well, excellent. And of course, uh, if we can try and maybe shift this into what you're talking about the next chapter, I mean, evangelical, it's this, this emphasis on the, the good news, right? The, the conversion is so central for um, evangelicals that they're, they're really interested in, in um, spreading this good news. So I wonder if, if moving to chapter one, if you could tell us a little bit more about the relationship between conversion and sports ministry. Yes. So as you said, evangelicals take it as their primary mission to spread a message of salvation. So part of what they do is, um, ask people to convert, uh, and they count conversions, it's a, they, especially early sports ministry and um, 1950s, 60s, 70s evangelicalism, very, very interested in sort of numerical evidence for the effectiveness of their techniques, which would be counting conversions, asking people to um, come up to the stage and physically demonstrate their commitment to Christianity, and then also fill out a little card so that they could... Um, send them a Bible or something like that, and then they, these cards become sort of physical evidence of the success of their ministries. So conversion is very important. Um, then the, the sort of next step there is teaching converts how to convert others um, in order to continue their mission of spreading this message. And so that practice of trying to convert others is called witnessing. Um, sharing the story of how you came to accept Jesus in order to um, invite others along that path. So early sports ministers were very interested in training Christian athletes on how to do this, how to witness. And this is when we see the practice beginning of athletes thanking Jesus after games and dedicating games to, um, to God and praising God for their wins. Um, However, as you might expect, this raised a significant ethical issue very quickly, um, which was 
how are you supposed to win? Um, does uh, this identity of being Christian affect the way you play the game? Are you supposed to, it, should it be obvious from the way that you are playing that you are a Christian? And if it should be obvious, how can you make it obvious? So it, was a, it became a, a much more complicated discussion very quickly, um, whereas the sort of the impulse of training these celebrity athletes to be well-spoken about Christianity raised almost immediately this question of ethical behavior and um, whether it was possible to witness through one's behavior or whether it was only possible to witness verbally um, before and after the game. But and wasn't that a problem, right? Because they, if I recall correctly from your book, they don't get to um, to witness verbally much anymore. Yes. So especially athletes in action who are forming these traveling teams to travel around the country. Um, part of what they were doing was they would have a halftime um, message where someone, uh, a member of the team, would share testimony, and they would have an altar call um, at at the game. Uh, to, you know, request members of the audience to um, indicate their commitment to Christianity. Uh, and so this um, w was the practice that they thought was central to their mission. So one thing that happened is, especially as they're playing in secular spaces and especially when they're playing secular colleges, um, this becomes a, a practice that... Um, that the host institutions become concerned it's going to offend alumni or affect their boosters or um, it give the, the wrong idea about the, the message or the, um, the uh, motivations on their own team. So they start marginalizing this witnessing practice. So at first it was before the game or after the game, but not during halftime. And then it was like, well, you can have a room down the hall that you can invite people to after the game and you can have your service there. Um, and now uh, the teams that travel don't, are not allowed to share at all. Um, they usually are able to have some sort of meal with the other team after the game where somebody shares their testimony with the other team, um, but they don't share with the audience. They print a program that um, includes a player's testimony, but they don't have the opportunity to conduct a service um, during the game, which was what they thought was sort of central to what they were doing. So this question of how to demonstrate one's Christianity without preaching became very, very important for these traveling teams. Um, and they've, they've developed a phrase called witnessing without words, uh, which uh, is there's actually a, a, um, a motto sort of floating around evangelical Christianity that's sometimes attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, which is share the gospel every day and when you have to use words, uh, which they took seriously that that that. Playing basketball, the way you play basketball, was a means of sharing the gospel. Um, and so then, of course, how, how to play basketball in a way that's going to demonstrate what you want. Um, and this was co contentious debates in every team that I studied on how to behave and um, whether winning was the most important thing, whether you had to win to demonstrate that the power of Christianity 
or um, and what happens when you lose or when you get injured or when you're angry and you lose your temper? Um, how do you how do you still demonstrate your Christianity in those challenging situations? Right. I, I thought in particular, I enjoyed your discussion on gamesmanship. Yeah. So that, um, yes. <laughs> uh, the soccer team that I studied uh, was very concerned with this sort of um, on-field behavior. So uh, in soccer, um, gamesmanship sort of playing right up against the rules but not breaking them, uh, using the structure of the game to your advantage in ways that are not illegal but are mm, sort of questionable with, uh, if you want to demonstrate sportsmanship, the opposite of gamesmanship. Uh, so they had a lot of debates. Um, should we use stalling practices? Should we take the ball to the corner? Should we take a long time to throw in the ball? Should we um, help somebody up when, they are, when they've fallen? Should we stay on the ground when we fall to stall and drag out the time? Because uh, these are practices that, these stalling practices are, are pretty normal in soccer and are encouraged by a lot of coaches. So they had to have very serious discussions about what to do and how to behave. Um, and these discussions were not easy. They didn't all agree with each other about what was right. And, um, and they, they definitely didn't want to lose. They're competitive athletes. So they didn't want to give the other team an advantage by, by not using these tactics that they expected the other team to use. So it was it was quite complicated is what I got out of it. And so one of the things that was so compelling to me being there during these discussions was how contentious it was and how um, how many points of view were present on this one evangelical team about how to deal with this issue of behavior. Right. So that and yeah, I thought this chapter did really wonderful way of, of kind of dealing with these tensions between. Uh, these identities and between this, you know, I'm an athlete, I'm supposed to win. I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm supposed to act in a Christian way, but does that mean that I can't win? <laughs> so, and you continued in chapter two to kind of explore um, the, the tensions of what it means to be an evangelical athlete. And that was really interesting. And you named this chapter Transcendent Intimacy. And we're talking about the, the experience of the body and athletic pre pleasure. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit, what is the connection between athletic pleasure and God for evangelical athletes? So as I was saying, the early sports ministers had this idea that celebrity athletes um, sharing testimony was going to be this powerful way of bringing more people to Christianity. Um, and one of the men that was involved in that project was a weightlifter named Wes Neal. And he traveled with other evangelical weightlifters from Athletes in Action. And he tried, they, they would sort of demonstrate their strength. Um, by doing these uh, very difficult, very heavy weight lifts. And then they would um, share the uh, message of salvation from evangelical Christianity with the audiences after they had sort of sufficiently impressed them with their strength. And um, Wes Neal did this for a while with a couple of other weightlifters, and he started to feel very troubled that, there, that his convictions, his Christian convictions, didn't affect the way that he lifted weights. 
um, and that he felt like these two parts of his personality, his identity as an athlete and his identity as a Christian, didn't actually affect each other, that they were that there was some sort of barrier between these two things in his life. And so he started to um, investigate. He started to really think about what it would mean to lift weights God's way. And this became, um, he actually just put out a DVD maybe 10 years ago called um, Doing Sports God's Way. So this became a sort of lifelong um, investigation for him of how to combine uh, these two identities. And one thing that he emphasized was that there are moments of sport where you just feel something amazing, where you feel um, a connection, a sort of uh, a, a, tr- a transcendent feeling of being in your body in a way that you don't feel in other parts of your life. And so he started to focus on that feeling and the, the sensation of pleasure in his body that other scholars have called flow state, um, bodybuilders call it the pump, um, this sort of like really um, ecstatic, uh, euphoric feeling in your body, runner's high, these sort of, um, this sort of mm, physical sensation. And he began to interpret that sensation as a sign from God that God was pleased with him as a believer. Um, and he called that a total release performance that this was a moment when the believer was using sport to release entirely towards God and that experiencing this intimate pleasure, this embodied pleasure, was God letting the athlete know that God was pleased with him or her. Um, so West Neal began to publish books on this topic and by the time that he published books in the 70s, and by the time I did my fieldwork in the early 2000s, um, this idea of pleasure in sport as a sign of God's love and God's appreciation was normative. So there was lots of talk about this sort of um, feeling pleasure in your body as a way of knowing that God is with you, that God cares about you, that even if you experience setbacks in your athletic life, like injury and loss, this sort of euphoric moment is a, a thing to hold on to that shows that, that God cares. Um, and one thing that was really interesting to me about this was that it took on a very sort of um, sexual ex- uh, narrative about what it means to have this sort of bodied, embodied pleasure. Um, so Wes Neal talking about a total release performance has this sort of orgasmic undertones to it that really connected it to pleasure in your body. Um, and the women that I would talk to about this also used language of intimacy and intimate connection with God um, as a way to describe this embodied pleasure. So for me, that, that, um, that indicated a significant shift away from focusing on celebrity power for evangelizing and towards focusing on what happens in your body and the, the sensations of pleasure that you can feel through sport and um, giving those religious significance um, that can be quite powerful for believers. And so, um, you know, the title of the book, the subtitle of the book is uh, 
the unintended consequences of sports ministry. So this was sort of the first major unintended consequence um, because the, the founders of sports ministry intended to promote a very masculine um, celebrated version of Christianity by using these male celebrity athletes as their spokespeople. But when the movement shifted to think about embodied pleasure, you didn't have to be a celebrity to have that feeling. So it really opened the door to mass, to large scale participation. And today, the largest members of the sports ministry community are youth athletes and female athletes, two populations that don't have a lot of celebrity power. Right. So it's very interesting. It shifts then from being that this, like you said, it's it's centered on kind of these elite athletes. Well, I'm sorry, I'm using a term you used and I'm using it differently. I apologize. But it's, it's moving from these celebrity athletes to um, to people who aren't celebrities, even though they're very skilled in, in their um, their respective sports. Yes, exactly. So it, it's it shifts the ground and it allows for a sports ministry to grow in ways that um, the original founders could not have anticipated. Um, so now, I mean, there's more than 100 sports ministry organizations in the U.S. Um, lots of these chapters at high schools are female-dominated and female-led. So it's space for female leadership in, um, in a world that's largely dominated by male leadership and attention to men. Um, so it's, it had this sort of uh, really interesting unintended consequence of opening the door for um, large-scale female participation in a movement that was intended to promote and recruit men. Right. <laughs> well, and uh, one other question, because you were, you were focusing a lot, um, you know, in our, our conversation just now on pleasure, and maybe this is because I focus on Catholicism. How does athletic pain fit into things? Yeah, so pain, you know, is the opposite of pleasure in, in many ways, but sports is this um, sort of complicated situation where certain kinds of pain are good and are pleasurable because they're good. So the feeling of your muscles being sore after um, really training hard can be a sensation of pleasurable pain. So it gets a little complicated. And athletes are trained to differentiate between good pain and bad pain. Um, to know when it's their muscles are sore and when they've hurt themselves and need to stop. Um, and so, and this is, it's hard for them, especially when they are excited about playing and they want to win and they get a feeling like, oh, maybe I hurt myself, but I don't want to stop playing. It becomes a sort of, you know, a moral conflict for them about what to do in that situation. Um, but in general, coaches encourage athletes to learn the skill of differentiating between good pain and bad pain, between pain that's going to help you be a better athlete and pain that might be injury and playing with that injury could um, impact your success. Um, so, so pain itself is a sort of complicated uh, topic. Um, so athletes have, Christian athletes have worked to develop narratives to interpret um, pleasure and pain in their lives. And one of the most significant narratives that I came across was the narrative of spiritual warfare. So this moves us into sort of the next chapter in chapter three, thinking about how athletes um, describe uh, what they're doing and the sensations that they're feeling. So spiritual warfare is this um, cosmic vision of the world as uh, constantly at odds between the forces of good and the forces of evil. And 
um, from what I gathered from my field work, this seems to really affect uh, evangelicals. So uh, evangelicals perceive that the devil is out to get them because they're the ones that are out to spread God's word and God's message of salvation. So the devil and forces of evil are real and are targeting Christians and Christian athletes in ways that um, are meant to undermine their credibility as Christians and prevent them from doing God's work of spreading the news of salvation. So um, they start to, because they're now living in this sports ministry world where experiencing athletic pleasure is a way of connecting with God, things that inhibit their experience of that pleasure are then called tools of Satan or methods of spiritual warfare. So injury um, and loss, certainly, but also other sort of more, other sort of situations that are more nuanced, like fatigue or um, uh, disunity on a team or um, conflict with a coach. Uh, these become uh, instances to talk about spiritual warfare and to, for some members of, of these teams, to, um, to, to notice elements of their world that seem to indicate this larger power struggle between the forces of good and evil that really elevates what they're doing. It really makes them important in a certain way um, when they're involved, when they are a, a warrior in this battle between the forces of good and evil. So this was the theme of the um, summer camp for high school athletes that I was present for. And then also this um, conversation about spiritual warfare came up in every other um, sports ministry space that I studied. Could you tell us then a little bit more about um, how it showed up at the, at the sports camps? Yes. So the way that um, FCA does its sports camps and its programming for high schools and middle schools is they choose a key Bible verse. That's the, the central verse for the year. And they also choose a sort of um, logo or a, not a logo. Oh, they have a logo also, but like a motto for the year, a catchphrase. Uh, and then all the programming for that year is directed in sort of investigating this, um, this key idea. So the year that I studied them, the theme was game ready. And the verse was from Ephesians. And, um, I'm not going to be able to quote it word for word, but it was something, something like put on the full armor of God so that you can be well prepared um, to serve him, something like that. Um, and I wish I was, I wish I had it in front of me. I can give you the exact <laughs> one, but that's, you know, that's the general idea. So there was this sense of um, arming oneself, preparing oneself to engage in sport as part of spiritual warfare. And so one of the things that I was very interested in was um, how this, attention to war and battle lined up with um, the, uh, the evangelical president, George W. Bush's descriptions of American obligations post 9-11. Um, and I make uh, some comparisons in the book about how the rhetoric of um, you're with us or against us or um, that, that this, that fighting Terror is a moral calling that 
correlates with what was going on at the sports camp and thinking about spiritual warfare and the forces of evil in the world and Christian obligations to um, to to be able to discern um, who is with us and who is against us and how to behave in those situations. Um, it, to me, it was quite heavy. It was quite a heavy lesson. Um, and I could see the students, the students, the, the student athletes um, taking it quite seriously in their understanding of what they were doing in sports and thinking about their lives and their choices as part of this, this larger cosmic struggle between good and evil. Excellent. Excellent. And I wonder, could you, um, one thing that I kind of uh, was excited when I read this on, on page 85, you, you talked about how they, um, let's see, I, I'm sorry, I lost the, uh, the sentence. Um, well, then, oh, uh, but basically the, they use the phrase a little bit differently, but they talked about the three enemies the, and in Catholicism, you talk a lot about that, the world, the flesh and the devil. Mm. And I was really surprised <laughs> because I was like, wait a second, they're using terms I'm familiar with. Mm-hmm. So now you talked a, a little bit about how they're fighting the world and how they're fighting the devil. Where does um, flesh come in? Great question. So particularly for the female athletes that I studied, um, they were in a, a really interesting position of playing sports and doing something that many people perceive as a masculine endeavor, um, playing sports at an elite level, sometimes um, sports that required them to engage in uh, actions with their body that were, where they had to run fast and kick hard and use their muscles. And these things that when men do it, it's, it confirms their masculinity. But when women do it, it sometimes throws their femininity into question. So they're in this position of being athletes and loving their athletic lives, but they're also members of an evangelical Christian community that has very strict ideas about gender um, and very clear um, teachings on the difference between men and women uh, that could, could come into conflict with their identity as a female athlete. So thinking about the challenges of balancing being a Christian and being an athlete, those are challenges of how to behave on the field and how to witness. Um, the challenges of how to be a female athlete and an evangelical woman are questions about how do I play hard um, and still have a sense of my own femininity and um, my own value as a woman in my community. And it's quite challenging for them um, to negotiate how to how to present themselves, but then also how to understand themselves so that they um, felt that they were living up to the expectations of their community. Right. And you really explore, I think, those issues well in the in this next chapter, chapter four, wearing our shorts a little longer. So I wonder, first of all, if you could unpack, what does that mean, wearing our shorts a little longer? So this was a great quote that I had when I interviewed one of the members of the Charlotte Lady Eagles, Nora. And she um, 
she's a she plays she at the time that she was playing for the Charlotte Lady Eagles, she was playing Division One soccer at an elite um, college, and she was a tall, strong woman. She's six two. Um, she her body set her apart from other women in a lot of ways, and she really liked feeling strong and feeling proud of what her body could do. Um, but this set her apart from evangelical women. And, and she, she would say, I walk into church and I feel it. I feel that I am different than the, the, the way this church wants women to be. Um, and so she, what she really liked about playing on an evangelical team was that being in that situation where she was with women that were all on the same page as her, that um, didn't question her gender um, because she was playing sports, because they're all there to play sports. She told me this that she says, we wear our shorts a little longer. And this means that it's okay that we signal masculinity because we're safe to do that in this environment where we are all female athletes together, female Christian athletes together, um, which was interesting, which was very interesting to me because I, um, I had thought about uh, how, how it might, um, how identifying as a Christian athlete for women might um, allow them to uh, sidestep some of the larger cultural suspicions that come along with being an elite female athlete, suspicions about mannishness, suspicions about um, closeted lesbians, and that saying, I'm a Christian athlete, would provide an opportunity to sidestep those things because there's sort of a larger American cultural knowledge that evangelical Christians um, don't support homosexuality and have conservative gender roles. So in that way, um, belonging, so I thought belonging to this organization would be a way of sort of sidestepping uh, larger cultural suspicions, but I didn't see that it would, it could also be a space to um, sort of live one's identity with more comfort uh, and not have to perform for a suspicious audience. Right, right. No, that 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 makes sense because yeah, when you're six foot two and you're yeah. uh, you're you're strong like that, and like you said, performing kind of what are perceived as masculine things, and yeah, there's going to be a kind of questions so that 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 does certainly make sense, and that's I thought you did a wonderful job exploring that. I, I just was fascinated as well. Just I, this is kind of a I guess, I suppose a minor thing, but from my perspective, this idea that women are supposed to wear their shorts shorter. Um, <laughs> I, from a from an you know from a Catholic perspective, from an evangelical perspective, that's kind of dangerous for the uh, heterosexual men in the audience. Yes, so it's this really interesting tension. So when she says we wear our shorts a little longer, she means we're wearing our shorts in the style of men's shorts. So we're women wearing men's clothes, um, and that has long been a sign of deviance in particular ways. In fact, some you know for some periods of time, it was illegal for women to wear men's clothes. Um, so, you know, there, that she's like, so she's letting me know when she says that, um, not just, you know, we're wearing shorts made for women that are longer, but we're wearing men's clothes. Um, another moment that came up in that same chapter about gender performance was um, a woman who was telling me that one thing that she would do after soccer practice was 
roll um, her shorts shorter, but not too short. Because you, you can't, you have to, they walk this really fine line of needing to perform femininity, but also chastity, purity. Um, so it is this really complicated um, expectation, which is, you know, not limited to evangelical women. This is something that all women deal with. Um, but for this population, it seemed to be amplified because of the conservative gender situation in their religious tradition. And if their jobs to help, I mean, help convert people to evangelical Christianity, and then they're instead, you know, um, inadvertently uh, encouraging them to sin, yeah. then they're kind of it's backfiring. Yeah, so they can't be mannish and they can't be sexy. You know, so it's, right. it's a really, I mean, like, so they have to find that really delicate middle ground because at the same time, they're supposed to be, supposed to demonstrate a sort of, a sort of attractiveness. Like, don't you want to be like me? Um, and right. don't you, don't you want to hang out with me? Don't you want to join my community? But they can't do that in a way that would undermine their credibility. Um, and being sexy would, would undermine their credibility. So it is, it's quite complicated for them to try to negotiate that middle ground. So one book that I found that was written for female athletes is called Experiencing God's Power for Female Athletes. And that book has a lot of very um, uh, complicated instructions about how to be a female athlete, where the authors will say something like, do you ever wear dresses? Do you ever put on makeup and try to feel pretty? Are you just wearing sweatpants all the time? So a sort of like, um, and like framing these things as questions is sort of a way of the authors are letting you know that wearing sweatpants all the time is not what you should be doing. Um, but it's also like, does it, they don't, they're not overtly promoting um, wearing dresses and makeup. It's, it's, a very, it's a very strange situation to be forced into that complicated middle ground. Right. So I wonder, could you tell us a little bit about uh, Nora and how she kind of dealt with these issues? So Nora's um, our 6'2 soccer player. And, um, and so she, um, like I said, she comes to find a sense of safety in um, Christian athletic environments uh, where it just goes without saying that she's straight, um, that she is in line with evangelical teachings on gender and on gender expectations and on the idea that marriage is an important part of Christian life for believers, that, that she takes that by being a member of an evangelical team, um, all that other stuff is just assumed. And so she's able to um, perform a wider range of, uh, of gendered behaviors, like running fast, kicking hard, wearing her shorts longer, because she's sort of protected by being a member of this community. Right. Excellent. So on one side, this, this, this sports kind of offers a certain protection at the other side, it, and as you talk about in Chapter 5, it it's kind of challenges some ideas of evangelical orthodoxy. So I wonder if you can tell us um, the, the kind of challenges sports ministry raises for evangelical uh, female athletes. Yes. So one thing I had been thinking about when I started my research was this idea, is sports ministry, do female Christian athletes use sports ministry as a closet? Um, are there lesbians that 
um, want to keep their sexuality secret for whatever reason that join sports ministry organizations to use that as a closet. So I had anticipated, I was looking for this. Um, and I had conversations with women while I was doing fieldwork about this idea. And um, they would say, well, of course, we all know lesbians. Of course, um, you know, we play, we all play on secular teams. We, we know lesbians. Lesbians are our teammates. We play against lesbians. Lesbians are part of our world. We know them. Um, and in general, the, um, the dominant uh, perspective on this was um, uh, love the sinner, hate the sin, which is a thing evangelicals say about homosexuality. Um, and there um, are resources within evangelicalism that um, promote an idea of um, separating um, behavior from desire, where having desires that are contrary to God's will is something all Christians experience. Um, and that's something all Christians work through. Um, and God gives Christians the strength to not in, engage in behaviors that God doesn't condone. So this was a way of saying, um, so long as you're celibate, we understand that you might have desires that are that you're working on. So it is, it's a little bit. This is all. This is. Um, a lot of the literature and um, recommendations for how to deal with gay Christians comes out of this moment in the 80s and 90s um, where there's a lot of fear about homosexuality. Um, and in particular for evangelicals, because the gender paradigm is so important, um, the idea of same-sex marriages and same-sex relationships and same-sex intimacy challenged a lot of the deep theological foundations of their religious tradition. Um, so I was curious, how, how is this going to play out in sports ministry? How does this play out in the, the lives of female Christian athletes? Um, and one thing that happened is I spent a, a competitive season with the Charlotte Lady Eagles, and there were some conversations about... Um, this idea about separating desire and behavior and that as Christians, we all struggle um, with sexual temptation of multiple kinds. Um, and so there was there was ministry about this, but I didn't actually talk to anyone who told me that they were struggling with these issues um, until a couple of years later when I had kept in touch with these women on Facebook. And um, I noticed one of the women had changed her relationship status to in a relationship with a woman. Um, so I sent her a Facebook message and I said, hey, I noticed that you changed your status and I really would love to hear your story. And if you're interested in talking to me, I would love to have a follow up interview with you about about this. Um, and what happened was this woman, Amy, um, told me a story about her and another player on the Charlotte Lady Eagles, Leslie, and how they both struggled with feeling sexual attraction for each other during the season that I was with the team, even though I had no idea that this was going on and that it was a, a huge part of their experience on the Eagles and that it was um, a really dramatic uh, challenge to their beliefs and their in their community. Um, and so their story, which I write about in chapter five, um, 
to me sort of shows uh, two sides of dealing with this issue of um, of same-sex attraction and same-sex intimacy, where Amy was completely unable to reconcile her desire to be with a woman with um, playing on an evangelical team, and she left the team and didn't return. And um, Leslie, on the other hand, uh, really took seriously um, the evangelical stance that God can change your desires um, and embraced a straight lifestyle and um, married and went on staff with the Lady Eagles and committed herself to remaining in that community. Um, And so this is a complicated issue because uh, many gay rights activists argue that sexuality is an unchangeable part of a person. And they argue this uh, in order to strengthen their argument to treat people who identify as gay as uh, equal members of society. Um, But I think part of this, one of the effects of this kind of activism is that it really limits our ability to talk about how sexual desires can change over time. Um, how one person can be in a relationship with a man and then in a relationship with a woman and perhaps go back to being in a relationship with a man. And that this doesn't mean that they were false in, at any time with their sexuality, that if that they were inauthentic in any way, um, it might be an indication that sexuality is complicated <laughs> and that um, we're really limited in the ways that we talk about it. Um, so one thing that came up when I had conversations with other members of the Charlotte Lady Eagles about their responses to homosexuality and to um, the lesbians that they know, because um, they, they all know lesbians, um, is that they, they would often sidestep me or downplay the issue and say, oh, it, 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 I guess it's a sin, um, but it's, it's the same kind of sin as stealing, even if you steal a paperclip. Uh, and so a way of sort of diminishing the power of holding sexuality apart from other kinds of sins. Um, and then some were, would say to me, I don't know if it's a sin. Um, I know that I'm a Christian and I'm supposed to love people. And I think calling this a sin could send the impression that those people are unloved. And I don't want to send that message. So it was quite complicated. Um, and I think it's complicated in general in the evangelical community. But I think the women that I studied were forced to confront this issue because they interact with gay people in their sporting lives. And that this might be different than evangelical Christians who have limited access to, um, to having gay friends. Right, yeah. This, um, I really have to, to compliment you on this chapter because this is not easy to write on uh, by any means. I mean, this is a very politically charged issue, uh, emotionally charged. and I mean, you're writing about people that you know. Yeah. And I thought this was just a, a really, really um, strong chapter. This is not an easy subject to deal with. I thought you did so in a very even-handed way. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I should say um, that all the names in the book are changed to protect the privacy of the individuals that I studied, just to clarify that. Right. Oh, yeah. Excellent. Excellent point. Right, right. Yeah. Th- uh, these aren't the people's real names. Yes. Um, and I don't think there's any last names given either. So it's, Exactly. It's very clear. Um so, and it's not just, um, I mean, this kind of hot button issue. As you talk about in chapter six, there's also just um, issues of for people who are who are not questioning their sexuality, who are just trying to uh, follow traditional evangelical gender roles. 
So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit, how have evangelical Christians understood the, the different gender roles? Yes. Yeah, so one of the places this comes to the, the fore is in evangelical understandings of marriage. Um, so the women that I studied, these elite female Christian athletes, um, were also in a position of challenging some gender understandings about the relationship between, between men and women. Um, and this is because they uh, were pursuing athletic careers, and this meant that they often postponed marriage and certainly postponed childbearing um, because that would obstruct their ability to um, pursue the, the highest level of sport that they could. Um, so this is a conflict with evangelical teachings about what Christian priorities should be, particularly for women, um, that marriage and children, uh, evangelical understandings um, promote the idea that for women, marriage and children really should be central to your identity and not something that you um, uh, push into a certain corner of your life, but something that is central to your life. So this uh, was a struggle for the women that I spent time with um, because they had two desires. They had a desire to follow the teachings of the tradition they believe in and to um, think of themselves as on the path towards marriage and children. But they also had a desire to play sports and win and pursue a career and think of themselves as on a path to athletic success. Um, and so those goals were contradictory, whereas for men, those goals didn't have to be contradictory. So um, Charlotte also has a men's evangelical team called the Charlotte Eagles. And one thing that I noticed was that um, the men would practice after the women's team often, uh, which was a, a more desirable practice time uh, to practice at uh, 9 a.m. instead of 6 a.m. Uh, but uh, that's neither here nor there. Uh, <laughs> the, that's that's a par for the course for female athletes. Um, well, it's it's they're the the women are the lady eagles, but the men are just the eagles. Yes, and this is also par for the course in sports teams. <laughs> um, the default is the male team, and the women's team is differentiated in some way, usually as the lady something or the like uh, there's there uh, are a range of ways of doing this. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but it's usually the lady somebody, um, which is, you know, lady itself is a kind of uh, loaded description for a woman. Uh, and um, that's a, a gender issue that sports theorists have engaged. Um, so what I noticed with the Lady Eagles and the Eagles is that there were women on the on the team, on the Lady Eagles team that had children. And they would often bring their children to practice with them. And these would be young children, toddlers, infants. And um, they would sometimes bring a babysitter. But often, if there was an injured member of the team or the trainer or the assistant coach or me, uh, we, would, we would watch the children um, during practice. Um, and this was totally normal. This wasn't like a one-time thing. This was a normal thing to bring children to practice. Um, and what I saw when the men would practice is that sometimes their children were at practice too, but their moms were there taking care of them. Um, so it was just a different idea about how 
who should be the primary caregiver or whose responsibility is it to take care of the kids? So there were also kids that didn't come to practice, and I assume that their fathers were taking care of them. Um, but there was this, this sort of um, – this clarified for me that um, – these the women on the team and the the women the wives of the of the eagles um, thought of it as their primary responsibility to be taking care of the children, um, and this is another reason why evangelical Christian athletes might postpone having children because if you know that primary care is going to fall on your shoulders, then you know that that's going to be a challenge for pursuing your athletic career. Um, so it so it was difficult. It was a you know a, a major struggle in their lives. Um, likewise, there's a, a lot of attention to marriage and marriage roles within evangelical Christianity. Um, one of the major developments within the last uh, couple generations in evangelical Christianity is the growth of this ministry called men's ministry, um, which is sort of most uh, popular or sort of the, the group that most indicates this is the promise keepers who had their heyday in the 90s, um, where it was a, a way for evangelical men to just be with men and talk about issues that matter for men um, and to think about um, their role as men and what it meant to be a Christian man. Um, and so marriage becomes a space to talk about this and a space to talk about what are gender roles. Um, and one thing that we see in men's ministry is that uh, there's a lot of sports metaphors that um, are used to describe uh, a, a marriage roles and gender roles within a marriage. So um, you have the, this rhetoric of, um, uh, of male headship and female submission um, that is that sports metaphors are used to describe. So there's this great metaphor like um, where the husband is the quarterback and the wife is the wide receiver. And they're on the same team, but when it comes down to it, the quarterback has to make the decision because he's the quarterback. Um, so, you know, there's this football metaphors. Football metaphors are very common, um, which is interesting since football is one of the few sports that we have where women don't play. Uh, and so it's it's interesting that those are that's the the the, the go to metaphor for describing marriage roles. Um, we also uh, one of the things I talk about in in chapter six about marriage is um, this movie called Facing the Giants, uh, which was an evangelical film that was quite popular about a coach of a high school football team and his struggles in his marriage and his struggles to um, unite the team and uh, it sort of follows a traditional sports movie uh, narrative where against all odds the underdog wins um, and it's sort of that narrative is quite compelling to tell the story of an evangelical sports team because um, what gave them in the, in the movie, what gives the team the power to win is using their Christianity to build community and to trust each other. Um, and a key part of the story is also the coach's individual success um, in overcoming struggles in his marriage, including the inability to conceive a child. And so the victory of the football team comes along with the wife announcing that she's pregnant as sort of this double right. victory of evangelical Christianity. Um, so you can see... And <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to be gross. I mean, whoa, whoa. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, it's, it, that just really was. I'm sorry. Go on. Yeah. So I mean, the, I mean, and the movie was quite popular. It's not. It wasn't a strange choice in any way. It was a, a movie that evangelicals um, tend to love as uh, something that they think shows the um, the the benefits of their life, their lifestyle. Um. So you know, I asked the female athletes that I hung out with about marriage and about. Um, what they thought about this conservative gender paradigm and how how it works in their lives, and they told me that they don't um, that they believe that men and women are different, but that they take very seriously this sort of other rhetoric that's emerged in evangelical Christianity called mutual submission, um, which is or servant leadership, which is this idea that. Um, Husband and wife are um, that they're that they're supposed to serve each other, and, and through serving each other, they serve God. So this is sort of a, a a new rhetoric that emerged out of Promise Keepers as a way of overturning the woman serving the husband, so the husband can serve God rhetoric um, that doesn't match with um, contemporary life experience. Um, so. In taking this seriously, taking this other rhetoric seriously, um, there's a lot of talk about treating uh, your spouse as your teammate. And as I mentioned, there's uh, this football metaphor about teammates actually uses the idea of teammates to solidify a sort of hierarchical authority. Um, but the women that I talked to and also in some of the, um, the articles that I read in publications for Christian athletes, showed that women, female Christian athletes, were able to take this rhetoric of teammates very seriously because they know what it means to be a teammate. Um, and so they think of themselves as having um, a responsibility to have difficult conversations with their husband and speak their mind and contribute to the relationship in ways that um, might come across as not fulfilling the more conservative presentations of marriage in evangelical Christianity. Um, so in that way, it, it was quite an interesting um, moment to see how this rhetoric that emerges basically from sports fans about sports, um, when that's put into place by real athletes who really understand what it means um, to what, what servant leadership really means, um, that that actually comes to fruition in a slightly different way and maybe an unexpected way. Um, so I think in thinking again about these unintended consequences of sports ministry, um, the second sort of set of unintended consequences had to do with the female athletes who are now the dominant population in sports ministry using sports to rethink um, the gender paradigms of their tradition and to manipulate that paradigm in ways that, do that doesn't reject it, but opens it to more fluidity, um, more freedom to, uh, to engage with men and with other women in a, a wider variety of ways and sort of um, tear a little bit at the constraints of that conservative gender paradigm. Well, excellent. Well, I, we've taken a lot of your time. And before I, though I ask you our traditional last question, I do want to give you the opportunity 
you know, your conclusion is a tale of unintended consequences. And you've, you've already shared with us a couple unintended consequences. I just want to give you the opportunity. Are there, are there any more you'd like to share or any, any concluding words about your book you'd, you'd like to share with us? Well, um, in terms of the unintended consequences, the sort of, as I said, the first one was this um, unintended consequence of opening sports ministry to women. And then the second unintended consequence was women using sport to think about Christianity um, and to rethink the gender politics of Christianity. So those are sort of the two major unintended consequences that I explore in the book. Um, In general, when I think about what I want readers to take away, I really hope that this book conveys a sense of the complexity of trying to live out identities that can be in conflict, the identity of Christian and athlete, the identity of, of female athlete and evangelical woman, and that it's hard and that believers aren't stupid or brainwashed or um, oblivious, that they, are, that they work really hard to try to figure out how to do this in a way that they think is in line with their their obligations and their priorities. So I, you know, I, I'm certainly not a member of the evangelical community in any way, but I came to really respect the work that believers put in to living a life they want to live. Oh, excellent! Thank you. And I mean, that really comes through because this is, um, you know, that, that that's always I think uh, one one feeling I've got when I've engaged with scholars who do work on evangelical Christianity is they, they tend to view them almost like, you know, almost like kind of odd people. Like, it's almost like you're, it's like we're going to the zoo. Um, mm-hmm. And that's not at all in your book. And that's one thing I, I really want to call it that's really great about this book, is that it's not saying, hey, these are odd people. Um, yeah, I actually I, think that you, whether you're evangelical or not, um, you can learn a lot by thinking about how people struggle with identity. Um, and and I, I feel really um, privileged to have been there to see the complexity of their experience. Well, and for our listeners, you know, we've hit a lot of um, uh, Annie's main points, but like I said, there, there's more to the book than what we've talked about. And it's, it's really difficult in an interview to get the um, uh, ethnographic uh, richness that she conveys through this work. So I highly encourage you to, to pick this up. So um, if I'd like to ask you, then we've already taken up a lot of your time. Uh, I want to ask you our traditional New Books Network uh, question. What are you working on now? Well, um, I had done some research for this project that didn't end up in the book uh, because it was about male athletes, and the book ended up being about entirely about female athletes. Um, so I, the fieldwork part of it. Uh, and so I wanted to, I'm working on a short article about the power team, which is the evangelical feats of strength ministry, uh, which is mostly men, um, although it, at least at one point there were there was one woman involved, uh, which is a traveling um, group that goes to towns and performs uh, weightlifting feats and then uses that to attract crowds and share a message of evangelical Christianity. So I'm working on um, exploring the, the concept of affect and how affect might be at work in their sort of highly charged, exciting um, presentations of uh, both what their bodies can do and the message of Christianity, of evangelical Christianity. So that's a, another thing that's come out of this same work. Um, I'm also 
sort of exploring um, other intersections of religion and popular culture and uh, looking for where my next book will be. Uh, and I, I wish I could tell you. I wish I knew. <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm in the process of, uh, of looking for something interesting. Well, when you do uh, find, finish it and publish it, please let us know. and Maybe we can get you on again if you're, you're able. I would, lo- I would love that. Well, excellent. Well, thank you so much, Annie. You have a good day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. This has been New Books in Christian Studies. I'm Dr. Franklin Rausch of Lander University. Thank you for listening to this interview, and we hope you'll come back again soon.